Good evening, EV Free. Can we give this band a round of applause for leading us in worship this evening? Guys, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Well, good evening. My name is Austin Helm. I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here at EV Free. Uh, And if this is your first time with us, uh, or if this is your 500th time with us, there's, there's a few core values we hold close to our heart. There's three things at EV Free that we're deeply passionate about. We're passionate about following Jesus as disciples. We think the life of discipleship is the best possible life to live. But we know that whenever we read the scriptures, we have to be family when we do it. When Jesus gathers his disciples together, he calls them brothers and sisters, those who don't only hear his word, but actually put it into practice. For Jesus, it was this family that was on a mission. It was this family that would be sent out into every corner of the globe to share the good news of Jesus. And whenever we read the scriptures, we find that time and time again, one of the central aspects of going as a missionary is having a story. One of the central aspects of going out and making a difference is having a story and sharing a story. Uh, In fact, my dad, uh, I love my dad deeply. I remember growing up, my dad, before I was born, he was in the Marine Corps. And having the opportunity to be in the Marine Corps, he had the opportunity to travel all around the world. And so I remember being young, and, and I would listen to all these stories of my dad in Europe, and my dad in Southeast Asia, and my dad in South America, and all over the United States. And every time he would begin to wrap up one of his stories, he would say, Austin, one of the best educations you can get in this life is simply to travel. Those stories my dad told me stuck with me more uh, in such a deeper way than any kind of nugget of truth or any kind of fact that he could give me. In fact, there's an old Indian proverb that says, uh, tell me a fact and I'll learn something. Tell me a truth and I'll remember it. Tell me a story and I will put it in my heart and carry it with me forever. See, in the life of discipleship, there is something deeply powerful about stories. And not just stories, but our personal stories. Some of you in here have insanely wild stories. Stories of you being on the far dark side and finding Jesus. Stories of you being completely lost and coming to faith. Some of you being absolutely purposeless and finding Jesus in the local church. For some of you, your stories are so crystal clear and what you were before Jesus and what you were after Jesus, they are such polar opposites that it creates this beautiful, beautiful contrast. If you're like me, sometimes your story is a little bit more difficult to find. Uh, Some would say, uh, before I came to faith, I was a whitewashed tomb. Uh, I was growing up in in a lower to middle class family, in a rural to suburban neighborhood, in a a decent school in Oklahoma. Any trouble I got in, I didn't get caught for it. In other words, my story just didn't seem very radical. It seemed wildly normal, almost vanilla in a sense. And so sometimes even when I get here on the platform and we begin to teach stories from your hard to come by because they don't seem gripping to me. They don't seem compelling. But whenever we read the text, we find that stories have the opportunity and the chance to change cities, to change schools, 
to change our work environments. So as we're studying the text today, I keep on running into this idea of how powerful our stories are. And so we want to talk about that for just a few minutes this evening. It starts in Mark chapter 4. Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee. And as a rabbi, he finds himself on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the early morning. And when you're on the shore of the Sea of Galilee in the early morning, it was the busiest, most bustling time for the sea. People were coming out to trade, to buy, and to sell. And so so as a rabbi, he's standing on the shore and he begins to teach. And he teaches three parables that are going to become foundational for what we're going to talk about tonight. A, A parable is simply a story that has a hidden truth within it. So Jesus is standing here on the shore of Galilee, and he says, what can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like a farmer that has a lot of seed. And he goes out, and he scatters the seed, and some of the seed falls on the path, and some of the seed falls among the rocks, and some of the seed falls among the thorns, and some of the seed falls among good soil. We'll actually pull these up for you right here. And when he begins to unpack this first parable, uh, simply what he's saying is the seed that falls on the path, uh, immediately Satan comes by and begins to, begins to pick it up and has no chance to grow roots. The seed that falls among the rocks, it blooms quickly, but it, it has no roots. And so it withers out and it dries out and it doesn't bear any fruit. Uh, the seed that falls among the thorns, it begins to grow, but the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth, they choke out the seed. But there's, there's a small minority of seed that falls on good soil. You see, not all of the seed that scatters takes, but there's a small bit of seed that falls in good soil. And this small bit of seed that takes, it bears fruit. But not just a little bit of fruit, fruit that is 30, 60, and 100 times fold. As Jesus tells this story, the crowd around the Sea of Galilee gets bigger. And then he tells this story about a farmer that goes and sows seed. It says he goes out in the day and and he throws seed on his land and then he goes to sleep. And when he sleeps, whether he gets up the next day and he's active or whether he's lazy, it doesn't matter. Mysteriously, the seed grows. It begins to sprout and begins to bloom until it comes into its full fruits. For Jesus, the scattering of seed and the way that it grew was an absolute mystery to the farmer. And then he talks about the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus says in the parable of the mustard seed, the the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds. But when you plant it and it begins to grow, it becomes the biggest plant in all of the garden. And not just the biggest, but it, it gives shade to the birds in the area. So Jesus tells these parables and and people begin to speak as if he's a teacher that teaches in a different way. He teaches as one who has authority. And and so the crowd around him is big and then Jesus makes the crowd think he's a little bit insane because he's sitting on one side of the Sea of Galilee and he says, I think it's time to go to the other side. We talked a bit about this last week. These would have been some of the most scandalous words Jesus could have said. To cross the sea and to go to the other side was to go to a space where they didn't worship Yahweh. The land itself, the people of Israel believed, would make you ceremonially unclean. And so the disciples fight him on this, but ultimately the disciples want to follow their rabbi. So they get in the boat and they begin to make their way to the other side. They're hit by a storm and they begin to to spin in circles, uh, unable to get control of their ship. But after hours and hours, Jesus comes and he calms the storm. 
It's after Jesus calms the storm, the, the captains are able to, to get the front of their boat realigned and they make it to the other side, which is where we pick up our story today. Uh, this would have been a scene in which once they pull up, Jesus and his 12 disciples in this boat, they would have been soaked. They've been in a storm all night in which there was rain and the waves were crashing overboard. And if you're one of the disciples, there's only a couple words you want to hear Jesus say. Hmm. Maybe we should just go back now. If you're the disciples, that's really what you wanted. But, but the boat has come on shore and you see your rabbi now at the front of the boat. And as the rabbi... As Jesus stands in the front of the boat looking at this pagan, Gentile, unclean territory, you hope your rabbi will invite you to turn the boat around and simply go back. But that's not the scene the scriptures paint. Instead, the text says that Jesus alone steps out of the boat. And as Jesus steps out of the boat, you can almost imagine these 12 disciples from the back of the boat begin to make their way to the front. They want to follow their rabbi, but then the scene they see absolutely makes them stop in their tracks. The text says that a man from the hills above is running down to meet Jesus. But this man isn't, he's not just a man. Uh, The scene they would have seen would have absolutely terrified them. There's a man running down from the hills, and and on the hills they can see a hillside filled with tombs. It's the kind of thing that you would see in a scary movie. And as this man awkwardly and aggressively runs towards Jesus, you can see this man has no clothes on at all. And as he gets closer, you see scrapes and scars and bruises all over his body. On some of the scrapes and the cuts, the blood has dried, but others are still fresh and dripping. And as he runs closer, you can hear the clanking of chains. This man had been chained hand and foot, but because of the power that he has, because as we'll find out, he's demon-possessed, he's broken these chains. If any of you watch The Walking Dead, you're looking at a scene from The Walking Dead. And it makes the disciples absolutely freeze in the boat. They see this man, naked, bruised, cut with shackles on his hands and his feet, running awkwardly and aggressively towards the boat. And the only thing standing between them and this man is their rabbi. Is Jesus standing on the shore. And if you've ever been in a scenario where you found yourself on the wrong side of town, or if you've ever been in a scenario in which you found that you were just out a little bit too late, or you found that you were in a space in which a crime was happening and you knew you shouldn't be there, there's a couple of words that your friends begin to murmur. We should get out of here. Like, we should go. We shouldn't be here. So you can imagine the disciples, as they see this man awkwardly and aggressively running towards Jesus, they begin to whisper to Jesus, Jesus, we should get out of here. Jesus, we shouldn't be here. We should go right now. Jesus instead continues to walk and he meets the man. And as this man is foaming at the mouth, Jesus can clearly see that this man is demon possessed. And so Jesus asks the man, What's your name? And the man replies with something simple says, Jesus, what do you want with me, most high son of God? 
Jesus replies again, what's your name? You see, in the first century world, when you were encountering a demon possession or evil spirits, to know its name was, in a sense, to have authority over it. And this man who seems to be demon-possessed simply says, all I'm asking is that you don't torture us. Don't send us into the abyss. Please just leave us alone. And Jesus asks again, what is your name? And what this man who is naked and bleeding and bruised with broken chains around his legs and his arms says would send chills down anyone's spine that was within the earshot. The man says these haunting words. My name is Legion. My name is Legion for we are many. You see, in the first century, when you began to talk about demon possession, there, there was a whole spectrum of it. It was the idea that you could be possessed at times, but not others. You could have one demon at one time, but none at another time. But when this man says, my name is Legion, it, the ideas of the Roman army come to mind. If you were a part of the Roman army, a legion could have anywhere from five to 6,000 soldiers in the army. And so this man isn't struggling with the sensation that he has a demon at some points and not at another. Instead, this man, if there was a spectrum from 1 to 10, this man is an 11. He's possessed by thousands and thousands of demons that have made their home inside of him. The text says it's so bad that he lives in the tombs and all night long he shrieks and he screams. And as they say, my name is Legion for we are many. Jesus looks on this man with compassion. He's completely isolated from everybody. Not only on the Gentile side of the sea would he be isolated because he's demon-possessed and he lives in the tombs. Most likely he's been completely estranged from his family. He's had no education since this possession. In fact, as an act of mercy, this town has tried to chain him up to keep him from hurting himself, but he continues to break himself free and to hurt himself. This man is absolutely isolated and all alone on the Gentile side of the sea. And for these 12 disciples at this point hiding in the boat, they would have wanted nothing to do with him either. He was triply unclean. Not only was this a pagan living on unclean land, but he had an unclean spirit in him. And not only does he have an unclean spirit in him, but he's living among the tombs, among the dead, which would make him another layer of unclean. This was a man that wasn't welcomed on either side, completely isolated. Have you ever known somebody like that? Have you ever known somebody in the school that you went to and the artists and the athletes and the academics, no group really wanted anything to do with them? Have you ever known someone in your workplace where your boss, your coworkers, your employees and clients just kind of wanted nothing to do with this person? Have you had even someone in your own family that seemed a little bit like the odd one out, couldn't seem to connect with their parents, couldn't seem to connect with their brother and their sister? Have you ever known somebody like that? Have you ever been in those shoes? Have you ever felt like that person that I, I can't relate to anybody? I feel isolated from everyone. I feel like I have no place to belong. 
This is precisely the kind of person that Jesus is looking at. When Jesus sees this man, he's filled with compassion. He wants to restore this man. He wants to make him clean again. He wants to restore him to his family into the workplace, into the marketplace, to a place of worship in which he can worship with other folks that are a part of the worship of Yahweh. And so Jesus looks at this man and simply says, come out of him, you impure spirit. And the demons begin to argue with Jesus, saying, don't cast us into the abyss. Don't torture us. Instead, there's pigs over there. Send us into the pigs. Jesus agrees. Jesus sends this legion of demons into the pigs on the countryside. And these, these demons are so destructive. As they take their place in the pigs, the pigs run off the bank and into the sea and are absolutely destroyed. Uh, the herdsmen that are watching after the pigs are disturbed on two levels. One, these pigs were a great source of income for the farmers. Their economy was based around these pigs. But not only that, in this particular area, one of the primary gods that was worshipped was the god Dionysius. And when you worship the god Dionysius, the gods of the area had a spirit animal, if you will. And for those who worshipped Dionysius, it was the pigs. The pigs were a part of the worship of Dionysius, but now a part of their worship has fallen into the sea and been completely destroyed. And so for these herdsmen, not only have they lost a significant portion of their income, but this Jewish rabbi is messing with their gods, is messing with the way that they would worship. And so the herdsmen run off into all the villages and all the countryside, telling everybody that this Jewish rabbi has shown up and has caused quite the scene at the Sea of Galilee. And so the people storm to the area and they approach Jesus And they see this interesting scene. They see this Jewish rabbi standing on their shore, which they never would have seen. But not only a Jewish rabbi, they see his disciples in the boat. They see the place where the pigs used to graze, but they've fallen into the sea. And then they see something that absolutely startles them. They see the man. The text says they see this formerly demon-possessed man sitting there next to Jesus, not running, not screaming, not cutting himself, and not naked, but fully dressed and in his right mind. Have you ever been in a scenario where things just were like a little bit too good to be true? Your house is usually a little bit messy and you walk in and it's super clean and your first thought is, what's going on here? Or you're with your significant other and your significant other brings you flowers or a gift and you think, what's going on here? Right? Like, like, that's the kind of scene here. They see this man sitting there and they don't rejoice. The first thought is, what's, what's going on here? And they're, they're actually so distraught by this. The text says they begin to plead with Jesus. Please leave, Jesus. We don't want you here because we are afraid. You're messing with our normal. 
You're messing with our ordinary. You're messing with our status quo. You are messing with the way that we worship Jesus. We would prefer that you leave. And so he's surrounded by probably hundreds of people that are violently asking him to leave the land. And the disciples are saying, I told you so. Jesus, this wasn't worth it. We should go or this is going to be the end of us. So Jesus hops back in the boat with his disciples and and they begin to push off from the ocean, from the sea. And and this demon-possessed man, he looks at the crowd around him and realizes, I'm never going to be accepted as a normal part of society here again. There's always going to be a stigma on me. And so as the boat is leaving the shore, the man runs after Jesus and he grabs onto the side of the boat and he says, teacher, rabbi, take me with you. What you've done for me is unbelievable. These other 12 that are following you, I want to follow you the way they are following you. On the Jewish side of the sea, Jesus oftentimes says, sure, take up your cross and follow me. Sure, come with me. But as this man, who's just been healed of a legion of demons, healed from screeching and living in the tombs and of living a life isolated from people, as he clutches onto the side of the boat and asks Jesus, can I come with you? Jesus says, no. He says, you can't come. Instead, he looks at the man and says, go home. Go home to your own people and tell them your story. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The text continues and it says, And so the man went to his home and began to tell this story. And you can imagine the life of the man. He, he goes to his home and he knocks on the door. And maybe his parents open the door and they see him there in his right mind. If you've ever been with somebody who's been estranged from your family, at times they've come back for a season just to hurt you again, just to let you down again. And so you can imagine if his parents open the door, they're a little shocked to see their son. And they don't believe their eyes quite at first, and possibly they're a little bit skeptical. But as the days and the weeks pass, And this man continues to tell his story. His parents and his family begin to be won over. And you can imagine as as the town would go out to worship the gods of the area, this man would say, no, 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 that's not for me anymore. My allegiance has changed. You have to know what the God of Israel has done for me. And this man continues to tell this story Until eventually, sometime later, Mark 7 has this amazing scene. Mark 7 is just a couple chapters after this event. It says that Jesus goes back to the same area. He goes back to the Decapolis. When Jesus left the Decapolis, he was surrounded by hundreds of people that were pleading with him to leave. Getting angry, possibly aggressive, and violent for Jesus to leave. When Jesus shows up on the shores of the Decapolis, he's met by the same kind of scene. Hundreds of people from all over the area pressing around Jesus. But instead of them pleading for Jesus to leave, they're pleading for Jesus to stay. 
They're bringing Jesus. They're lame. They're sick. They're blind. They're deaf. They're mute. And they're asking Jesus, will you lay hands on our people? Scholars would say that the change of this scene is probably because of this one evangelist. This one sole single evangelist that was left on the other side of the sea not to raise the dead. Not to heal the sick. Not to proclaim the good news of a cosmic redemption, but simply to tell his story. This is what the God of Israel has done for me. This is the mercy he has had on me. And because of this one man's story, told about faithfully and consistently, the reputation of Jesus on the other side changes. And you can imagine the disciples at this point. They're going back to the Decapolis and they're thinking, why are we going back? Jesus, we know what happened last time. And when this scene meets them, all of a sudden the parables that Jesus had been speaking about begin to reverberate through their soul. The parables he had taught them just before going to the other side. The parable of the sower. The one who scatters seed all over the other side, but not all the seed is going to take. In the case of Jesus, only one of the seeds takes in one of the people. This demon-possessed man, the rest was choked out. It was picked up or it grew no roots. In the same way, the parable of the growing seed, it, it was scattered all over the other side and then Jesus and the disciples left. And when they come back, it's a mystery, but that seed has grown. And in the same way, they gave this seed to one of the people that mattered the least in their village. A demon-possessed man, estranged from his family, his friends, and his society. Someone who had no real credibility. The one seed that took was with this kind of a man, but this seed grows into the biggest of the trees. And all of the Decapolis region is changed because of, because of one man's story. And w when I read something like this, I, I'm so convicted about my own story. I'm so convicted because I, I don't often share my story. I feel like there's no power in my story, even though my story is simple. I feel like there's no excitement or energy in my story. But whenever we read the text, we find over and over again that our stories are important. Revelation says it like this. When, when it talks about overcoming systemic evils, when it talks about overcoming evil and sin in the world, it simply says this. It says that the church, they triumphed. And they triumphed over sin and evil by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony. They triumphed by the blood of the lamb and the words of their story. You see, I read this and I'm challenged to think, what would happen if a community of people began to consistently and faithfully simply tell their story? Some of the stories in this room are absolutely wild and it looks a little bit like the Mark 4 scene. And for some of you, your stories may be like mine. You come from a simple family in a simple area in a simple school. And it doesn't seem exciting. It doesn't seem grand. But 
the text isn't looking for grand stories. It's just looking for your story. And what we find over and over again that our story doesn't just belong to us. It belongs to all of the church. And not just to the church, but for the church and ultimately for the world. I'm reading this text asking the question, what would happen? What would happen if a community of people consistently and faithfully began to share their story? Encountering all kinds of people in your workplace and in your local Starbucks, people that are completely turned off for church, what would begin to happen to them if we just consistently and faithfully shared our story? Maybe they'd be the kind of person that would get over their fear of the local church that would become unafraid with the stigma of the local church and they would come join us on a Sunday evening. They'd come join us on a Sunday morning. What what if a part of your story is, is the life that you stumbled upon in community groups? The chance to meet in homes and to read and to pray together. What if that story is shared with somebody that has doing, been doing faith for far too long all by themselves? Missing out on the joy and on the wonder of doing life with God's family? What if your story is designed to change their perspective? You see, a story shared faithfully and consistently can win a city. Stories shared faithfully and consistently can win a workplace. Stories shared faithfully and consistently can win in our homes and win in our schools. See, all of us in here, we're called to be missionaries. We're called to go and to make disciples. And what all of us have been given is our story. Church, I think that might be the challenge for us tonight. That Jesus might be saying to us, go back to your workplace. Go back to your school. Go back to your home. Go back to your Starbucks and just share what the Lord has done for you about the mercy that he has had on you. And what if it's that story that begins to turn the tide in Fullerton and turn the tide in Brea and your Belinda and Placentia? What if it's our stories together told faithfully and consistently that changes the landscape? From a place where people are skeptical, indifferent, or distant from Jesus to a place where people are running towards Jesus. If that's what he did for you, I want it to be done for me. What if that's our challenge tonight? To recover our story and to share it faithfully and consistently. Let's pray this evening. Father, we are uh, we're so thankful in this moment that we are sitting in a room full of stories. Stories of how good you have been. Stories of the mercy that you have had on every single person in this room. When we look around this room, Jesus, our hearts are full. They are filled. And so, Holy Spirit, one of the things we ask you for this evening is that for everyone in this room who feels like they don't have a story, 
that feels like their story isn't exciting, that feels like it's not adventurous, that feels like it, it, it just, it's just not full enough, the Holy Spirit, you'd begin to nudge them. You'd begin to speak to them and you'd begin to remind them of how powerful their story is. And that you want to use their story for the advancement of the gospel, for the glory of your name. And so, Father, as we worship, we ask you to do this. We ask you to speak to us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship together.